All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And by the way, there's still a handful of the 1 John ESV journals out there on the table. If you would like one for taking notes, they are there. So 1 John 2, 12 through 17. And the title of today's sermon is A Tale of Two Loves. Before we get to today's text, I think it's important for us to understand the context of these verses again uh, and the issues specifically that John's dealing with. Uh, Remember, John is writing to a church with the purpose of combating false teaching coming specifically from the Gnostics. And he's also trying to give assurance to true Christians within the church. Uh, I mentioned this last week, but doing both of those things at the same time is quite the challenge. For one group, he's wanting to bring down the apostolic hammer. He's wanting to say, your quote-unquote Christianity is a sham. That You claim to follow Christ, but you don't even know him. You walk in the darkness, you're blind, and the truth's not in you. Your fruit, or or lack thereof, is bogus. He's wanting to say to that group, don't be deceived. But, for the other group, true Christians, he's wanting to give them assurance in their faith. So far in the book, John's been throwing some haymakers, hasn't he? But... It's here in the letter that John almost pauses, takes a breath, and says, let me just stop to encourage you for a second. I want to encourage true believers before exhorting you a bit more. And that's exactly what we see in today's text. Gospel encouragement followed by gospel exhortation. So let's dive into God's word together. This is the word of the Lord. 1 John 2, verses 12 through 17. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. While many see this as two separate sections, I want us to see how these verses actually go together. They complement one another. Before telling the the church, before telling us what not to do, John wants to make sure that they and we know who we are. 
He wants you this morning to know who you are in Christ. And I think this is a great pastoral move on his behalf. Instead of convincing someone not to eat junk food, it's so much easier to show them a steak. In other words, when we see the beauty of Christ, when we fix our eyes upon him, the things of earth easily fade away. And that's the structure of our text today. Point one, the things of God. We'll see that in verses 12 through 14, gospel encouragement. Point two, the things of the world in verses 15 through 17, where he's giving gospel exhortation. So point one, the things of God. Notice the structure here. John is so thoughtful in how he writes to the church here. Remember, he's just finished telling them who they should should love. One another, right? He's about to tell them what they shouldn't love. The world. But he realizes that he needs to stop and remind them of who they are. The truth of their Christianity. And as always, what's true for their Christianity in the biblical world is true for you today. As Christians in Santa Cruz County in 2023, hear these words, God's truths for them and for us. And John so wants them not to miss this that he breaks into poetry for two verses. Most of your translations rightly set these verses apart. There's a clear rhythm and a structure to them that can't be missed. And here's what John appears to be doing. First, he's addressing all Christians. John is over 80 years old at this point, and in a loving, fatherly way, he calls the men and women of the church little children and children. He does this all over this book, if you're paying attention. So, when he's saying little children and children... He's referring to all true Christians, the children of God, who share God as their father. And look at the two truths that John highlights here. Number one, little children, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. He's already told us this a couple of times, but he returns to it again for encouragement. Christian. Your sins are forgiven. Every single one of us sins because we're sinners. Every single one of us has lived in rebellion against the cosmic creator of the universe. Every single one of us deserves death because of our sin. But instead, because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. God, the Father, the just judge, looks upon Jesus' death on the cross and then looks upon you and pardons you for all of your sin. That's the core. That's core to who you are as a Christian. That's your identity. Forgiven. And before we move on, I just have to point out why John says that we're forgiven. Little children, you are forgiven for his name's sake. Do you see that? 
What's John saying? For his name's sake. Well, God's name is his character. John is saying that our sins are forgiven because of God's character, because of Christ's person and work. He gets all the glory for our salvation. When we proclaim that we've been forgiven, Christ is the one who gets honor, not us. Why? Well, because we don't add anything to it. We don't chip in to pay for our forgiveness. It's all him. Our sin slate is wiped clean, not for our name's sake, but for his. Look at how God says it in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. Isaiah 43, 25, God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. Isn't that amazing news? God forgives the sins of his children for his name's sake. We rejoice in this truth. We give God all the glory for this truth. The other glorious truth that's being communicated here is that we're forgiven in God's name. Let's say that I work for a company. Just pretend that that I work for some random company. And I make a mistake that costs the company thousands of dollars. It's one thing to be forgiven by my colleague at work. It's a completely different thing to be forgiven by the owner of the company. If I'm really forgiven, it matters big time in whose name I'm forgiven. I forgive you are three of the most powerful words that can be spoken. And when they're spoken by God himself, that's astounding. Christians, you are forgiven for his name's sake, because of his character, for his glory. Second, John tells all Christian children that they know the Father. They know the Father. That in and of itself is an amazingly encouraging truth. As Christians, we have been adopted into God's family as his children. He's our Father, as we sung about earlier. And we know him. None of us, and I do mean none of us, were naturally born into God's family. Our family of origin doesn't get us into heaven, regardless of how long our parents have been in the church. I recently heard it said that God doesn't have any grandchildren, only children. And that's right. In other words, I'm not declared a Christian or a child of God simply because my parents are Christians. On the contrary, all of us, All of us were spiritual orphans until God adopted us. He is our Father, and we are his children. Sit in utter amazement at that for a moment. The God of the universe, who created everything everything that we see, that God is our Father. 
I love what J.I. Packer in his book Knowing God has to say about this. He says this. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God the Father. Having God as our Father, us being his children, is a big, big deal. So, John declares that that all children of God have their sins forgiven and know the Father. Anchor truths for the Christian faith. In fact, these are both reflected in the promise of the new covenant all the way back in Jeremiah 31. This is where the new covenant comes to be. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each, each his brother saying, know the Lord. Here's the promise. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Then he says, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Do you see that? The new covenant, they will know me and I will forgive them. First John, little children, you're forgiven and you know the father. Rest in those truths as his children. So John starts speaking to all Christians generally. Then He breaks down the household of God, or God's children, into two categories. Fathers and young men. Fathers and young men. Now, while it might be easy to think that John's talking about age here, I don't think that's the case. What he seems to be doing is speaking to two different spiritual maturities. And to be clear, these don't just include men. They would include women as well. So when he's speaking to fathers, he's speaking to those who have been Christians for a while, the more spiritually mature men and women in the church. When he's speaking to young men, he's speaking to men and women who are younger in the faith. So what is it that he says? Fathers, you know him who is from the beginning. He says the exact same thing twice, doesn't he? Why would he be reminding the older, more mature members of the church of this truth? That they know him who is from the beginning. And when he says him who is from the beginning, I believe that he's talking about Christ. This is the same kind of language that John used in 1 John 1.1 and in his gospel in John 1.1. But consider this. If If you've been around the church for a long time, You've served a long time. 
You've heard a thousand sermons. You've been faithful to the brothers and sisters for a long time. It could be easy to think, I'm nearing the finish line. Time to coast. Or you could be discouraged thinking that there's nothing for you to do around here. John here, he's wanting to put some more gas in your tank this morning. He's saying, older, more mature saints, remember Jesus, who's from the beginning. You have been going a long time, but he's been going longer from the beginning. Keep following him. Keep being faithful. Keep pressing the gas pedal. You know him who is from the beginning. That's what he wants to say to those who are older and more mature in the faith. And what about those who are younger in the faith? How does he encourage them? First, he tells them that they have overcome the evil one. And then he tells them that they are strong. I love this. Instead of telling them to be strong, he tells them that they are strong. This is how you encourage. You remind people of the truth. You remind them of their identity in Christ. You remind them that they can do it because of who they are. He's saying, young men and women, you've got a lot of youthful zeal in your faith. You're in the middle of the fight. You're in the middle of the spiritual war. Don't shrink back. When you're strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, you're strong, Christian. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. He's going to come to you to try to condemn you. But guess what? That roaring lion is detoothed because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have overcome the evil one because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. You're strong. And I love what John says here in verse 14. He says, the word of God abides in you. Young people in the faith, the only way that you stay strong is through God's word abiding in you. When you're tempted to sin, be loaded with scripture. When Satan comes to condemn your conscience, be loaded with scripture. When you lift weights, you get physically strong. But when you abide in God's word, you become spiritually strong. Young people in the faith need to know this. You might be young in the faith, but with God's word, you can stand strong against the devil and his schemes. John's wanting to tell you this morning, you're not defenseless. Fathers, young men, children, be encouraged by these truths. You're forgiven. You know God. You're strong and have overcome the devil through Christ. Those are core truths that you have to know to make it through this broken world. So, that's where John begins this section, with gospel encouragements. So after telling us who we should love, he took a little pause to 
fill us in with these truths, or to fill us up with these truths. And now, with full tanks of gas, he's going to tell us what we shouldn't love. Point two, the things of the world. Before we actually dive into this section of text, I just want to stop and acknowledge something here. Many people believe that because God is love, and that's true, many people believe that because God is love, that he loves everyone and everything. But that's not true. There are some things that God hates, and so should we. I just want to read a handful of scriptures. Uh, There's too many of these to to read, but I'm just going to read a handful of them. Psalm 5, verses 5 through 6. It says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Psalm 97, verse 10. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Psalm 119, 104. Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Finally, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9. It says, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. There are some things that God hates. And we should too. And here in our passage, John's going to key in on one of those things. Look with me at verse 15. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. Just like last week, it's so vital that we define these words. And so I just want to start with the word love. Love. Same word as last week. Agape. One commentator says this. He says, in its essence, love is two things. Pay close attention. He says, love is two things, a desire for something and a commitment to something. Whatever it is that you desire and whatever you're committed to, that's where your time and resources will go. If you love football, that's where your time and resources will go. If you love hunting or fishing, that's where your time and resources will go. If you love your spouse, your desire to spend time with her, and you are committed to her. Love is more than an emotional feeling. Love requires a commitment of time and resources. Got it? Love is a desire for something and a commitment to something. Now, what about the world? The world. What does that mean? Well... It can actually mean several different things, depending on the context. And this is one of John's favorite words, by the way. It's the word cosmos. This word appears 186 times in the New Testament. And of those 186 times, 
A hundred of them are from the pen of John. 77 in his gospel and 23 here in the book of 1 John. Sometimes cosmos is used to describe the universe, everything that God has made, creation, the world. Uh, Other times, cosmos refers to the world of men and women, humans of every tribe, tongue, and nation, the world. John 3.16, great example. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The world. Still, at other times, cosmos means the world system, a worldview, or an ethical system. James Boyce comments that the idea here in 1 John is of the world of men in rebellion against God, and therefore characterized by all that is in opposition to God. This is what we might call the world system. It involves the world's values, pleasures, pastimes, and aspirations. We see this usage of the world in 1 John 5, 19. He says, we know that we are from God. And the whole world, the world system, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John uses all three of these usages, and context matters. In fact, let's read John chapter 1, verse 10. John chapter 1, verse 10. Look at how he uses this term, the world, in three different ways in one sentence. John chapter 1, verse 10. He, meaning Jesus, was in the world. And the world was made through him. Yet, the world did not know him. You see that? So why does this matter? Well, because some people take this verse in 1 John 2, the one that that we're looking at today, some people take this, this verse and they say, well, we as Christians are to hate the world. And they literally reject everything about it. Some, in the most extreme cases, go to live in a monastery to avoid being part of the world. Others decide that They're only to love Christians because everyone else is part of the world. Others reject certain foods, drinks, music, and even owning things as being too worldly. Is this what John's teaching? No. I believe that these are misrepresentations of what John's saying here. He isn't calling you as a Christian to despise creation or the people of the world, or even culture necessarily. I believe in context here, cosmos means the evil world system and its way of thinking and operating. Alan says this so well. He says that cosmos here means the organized evil system with its principles and practices, all under the authority of Satan, which includes all teachings, Ideas, culture, attitudes, activities, etc., that are opposed to God. A fixation on the material over the spiritual. Promotion of self over others. Pleasure over principle. These are just a few descriptors of the world system John is talking about. The word world here means everything that opposes Christ and his work on earth. So with that in mind, 
Let's look back to our text. Look again at verse 15. John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is a huge statement. And to understand this, I need to get slightly technical and nerdy for a second. This phrase, the love of the Father, love of the Father, it's what's called a genitive clause in Greek. And this can either be a subjective or an objective genitive. Uh, Let me explain the difference and why it matters. A subjective genitive would make the father the subject uh, of the sentence. In other words, the father's love for us. On the other hand, an objective genitive would make the father the object. In other words, our love for the father. Do you see the difference? Okay, so... Which one is it here? There's no hard and fast rule in the grammar, and so context is how you decide. Because of the flow of thought here, I believe that it's an objective genitive, meaning our love for the Father. Why go through the trouble of all this grammar here? Well, because it matters for meaning. What John seems to be saying is this. If you love the world, you can't love the Father. This this isn't a percentage type of thing. It's not like you can say, I love the Father 60% and the world 40%, or even 70-30, or even 90-10. John is saying that the two loves are mutually exclusive. Maybe bring this a little closer to home. Imagine you're at your wedding. You're face-to-face with your bride or groom, who you're about to marry. And they say, I love you, but I also love someone else. But don't worry, it's just a little bit. I love you the far majority of the time, but I love someone else here and there. That doesn't fly, does it? doesn't hear either. That's what John's saying. You can't love the world and have love for the Father. You can't love God on Sundays, but love the world on Mondays. They're mutually exclusive. Augustine said it this way. He said, to love the world and not God would be like a maiden who loved the ring her lover had given her and cared nothing for him who gave it. Look at how James says it. James 4, verse 4. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Loving the world is allowing your appetites, desires, thoughts, and behaviors to be controlled by earthly values and not God's values. John says, do not love the world. And remember, before making this command, John reminded us of who we are. He he gave us the steak before he told us not to eat the spam. Christian, you're forgiven. You know God. 
You're strong. And you have overcome Satan. Therefore, don't desire and commit to the evil world system. Do you see it? It's a no-brainer. But to further make his case, John gives us two reasons for why we shouldn't love the world as Christians. Look again at the text, verse 16. He says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. So, number one, we shouldn't love the world because these things are not from the Father. James chapter 1, verse 17 reminds us that every good gift, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. But these worldly desires are not from the Father. That's what he's saying. What are these worldly desires? John says, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Let's take these one at a time. Number one, the desires of the flesh. This word desire is sometimes translated lust. But by itself, it's actually a neutral word. It means to be hot after something. To be hot after something. Simply having desire for something can be good or bad, depending upon the object. Take Psalm 63, verse 1, for example. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Desiring God? A very good thing. We're not meant to be Stoics with no desire or emotion as Christians. It's good to have desire for God and for the things of God. But here, look at the word that John pairs with the word desire. Desire of the flesh. Desire of the flesh. Not always, but more often than not, flesh in Scripture means sin. What John's saying is that one of the worldly desires is to be hot after sinful things, to have an inordinate desire. And we can fall into this trap in two different ways. First, the most obvious one is we can desire things that we shouldn't. We can be lustful towards someone who's not our spouse. We can sinfully desire food and gluttony. We can sinfully desire material things or position or any number of things. But the second way we can fall into this trap may be a little bit more subtle. If desire means inordinate desire, it can also mean loving good things in the wrong order. If if I love a good thing, but I love it more than God, that's a sinful desire. An idol is when we make good things God things. The desires of the flesh are any desires that are contrary to the will of God. Do we understand how this can destroy us? I love what Andy Crouch once said about this. He said this. He said, 
Idols promise you everything in the beginning and demand nothing. But in the end, they demand everything and give you nothing. Hear this. When God is your ultimate desire, he promises you that you'll be satisfied in him. Where we go wrong is when we desire things contrary to him and to his will. That will leave us empty and wanting. So the desires of the flesh. John then says the desire of the eyes. Same concept, but dealing with our sense of vision. Think about King David in the Old Testament. He saw Bathsheba, lusted after her, then committed adultery, then murder. It all started with the desire of the eyes. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, verse 22 through 23. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? What John is saying is desire controlled by sight is a worldly thing. See a car? Gotta have it. See a position? Gotta have it. A grass is greener on the other side philosophy. See another man or a woman? Gotta have them. See a dress or a product? Gotta have it. Advertisers thrive on this worldly desire of the eyes. God's word says, that's not from the Father. Third, John says, the pride of life. So we've got the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. Again, this is in the same vein as the first two, but it's a little more specific. It can also be translated pride of possessions. It means the desire to brag or to be seen as the best. To be someone who one-ups everyone. Prideful about all the things and achievements you have above everyone else. This is not from the Father. I'd argue that social media thrives on this weapon of Satan. But unfortunately, these three worldly desires have been around for a long time. Long, long time. Uh, Let's look at Genesis 3. All the way back in the garden. Genesis 3, verse 6. Satan tempted Eve with these three same things that we see in 1 John. It says this. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, the desire of the flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes, the desire of the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, pride of life. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. These worldly temptations have been around for a long, long time. But here's some encouragement for us. Jesus has overcome them. Uh, Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, succeeded. Remember Jesus' temptation by Satan? Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, remember that? What does Satan tempt Jesus with? First, 
Tell this stone to become bread. The desire of the flesh. Second, says Satan, showed him the kingdoms of the world. Desire of the eyes. Finally, Satan took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. The pride of life. Jesus overcame all three challenges, and he did so on our behalf. We can overcome because Jesus already did. He lived righteously in every way. And that righteousness is credited to us when we trust in him. One older preacher commenting on these three desires said this, and I would encourage you this. He says, to ignore these three great enemies is like ignoring gravity and slipperiness while scaling the icy slopes of the Swiss Alps. You would long find yourself at the bottom of a precipice. Friends, the world will always overpromise and underdeliver. Worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. John warns us that these things are not from the Father. I encourage you to keep an eye out for where these three weapons are waging war within you. When you see them, cling to Christ. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Remember who you are in him. In closing, John finishes with one last reason for why we shouldn't love the world. He's told us that these things are not from the Father. And then look at verse 17. He says this. He says, And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. John's second reason for why we shouldn't love the world is that it's fleeting. It's short-lived. It's going away. And this word that's translated passing away is a great one. It's the word paragatai. And it was used in first century theaters for when a scene would end. The curtains would close and the set props would be taken away. Passing away. That's what John's saying. He's saying the world scene is going to end. The curtain is going to close. The props are going to be taken away. They're fleeting and impermanent. Can you imagine how silly it would be for a stage actor to just flip out or try to cling to one of the props being taken off the stage? That's my house! That's my car! You're taking it away! Do you see John's point? The things of the world system aren't from the Father. And they're temporary. They're here in God. They're a flesh in the pan, a drop in the bucket. It's silly when we place so much emphasis on the things of earth. On the other hand, look what John says at the end of verse 17. But, but, whoever does the will of God abides forever. In sharp contrast to the world system is abiding forever in God's will. The choice between these two loves is a clear one. 
You can love the world for a short amount of time, and then it's gone. Even then, you won't be satisfied or content. Or you can love God forever and be satisfied for eternity. Christian, I, I asked this question this morning. Have you become too cozy with the world system and the desires of this world? Have you become too cozy with the world system and the desires of this world? David Allen gives us seven convicting statements for consideration here. And I'm, that I'm up here on the screen. I invite us to consider these. He says, first, when the world or any object in it so engrosses our thoughts to such a degree that it excludes serious reflection on the things of God, we are guilty of loving the world. When the world is our constant associate, the last companion of our thoughts at night, in the first, when we awaken in the morning, we are loving the world. Second, when the things of the world engross most or all of our conversation, we are loving the world. Third, if we are unwilling to part with it when need be, or to give it, it or anything in it up to God's purposes, we are loving the world. Fourth, discontentment with our portion of the world's goods proclaims a criminal love for it. If we secretly grieve because we are not blessed with every earthly convenience or delight that others possess, we are loving the world. If we are not entirely willing uh, that God should govern his own world and distribute his own gifts as he pleases and to whom he pleases, it proves that we pay homage to the world, which belongs only to God. Fifth, when we pursue it with greater zeal and enjoy it with higher relish than we do serving God and enjoying his favor, we are loving the world. Two more. Sixth, if we pride ourselves in earthly distinctions, if we expect great deference and resent the least contradiction or slight from others, we are loving the world. And seventh and finally, when we seek to acquire or retain its objects in a wrong manner or by unwarrantable means, we are loving the world. Christian, do not love the world. I want to remind you of who you are. Children, you're forgiven. You know God and are known by God. You have overcome the evil one. And you are strong. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. This is a tell of two loves. Which one will you choose? Let's pray.